0: Welcome everyone back to another episode of New Books in Education. This is your host, Ryan Allen, and we're on the New Books Network. And today I'm excited to bring you a book that uh, I actually have sent or am going to send to uh, my mother as soon as we're done talking about it today, uh, as she is uh, an educator herself. And this book is 50 Myths and Lies That Threaten America's Public Schools the Real Crisis. Welcome everyone back to another episode of New Books in Education. This is your host, Ryan Allen, and we're on the New Books Network. And today I'm excited to bring you a book that uh, I actually have sent or i am going to send to uh, my mother as soon as we're done talking about it today, uh, as she is uh, an educator herself. And this book is 50 Myths and Lies That Threaten America's Public Schools, The Real Crisis in Education. And this is by uh, David Berliner, uh, Berliner, excuse me, and Jean Glass. In this and book... Our, and our associates. And and uh, there there's plenty of associates. Uh, we, we cannot list them all in the podcast uh, for brevity, but please check the... Blog post, and we will have a link to all of the uh, associates for that. And uh, I think you, you heard that right there. That is uh, uh, Dr. David Berliner. And uh, David, uh, let me just go ahead and read uh, your, your sort of opening quote that you have. And I think this is really nice uh, because someone close to me, as I mentioned, my mother, who was an, edu- an educator as well, and you guys kind of dedicated this to educators who uh, were connected to the family. So let me read that's really nice. Uh, To our nation's teachers, often underpaid and underappreciated, expected to reach unattainable goals with inadequate tools, who still have managed to make our public schools the path to self-fulfillment for generations of Americans. And you dedicate this to the educators in the family. Uh, So I think that's really, really great, really nice sentiment. So getting right in, jumping off from that point. Uh, why did you guys decide to write this book and uh, why is it important and uh, how did it sort of come together?
1: We were, uh, uh, Gene Glass and I were uh, uh, moaning and groaning for years over uh, what we considered stupid laws. Uh, for example, No Child Left Behind would, would have 100% of the kids proficient in this year, 2014. Well, that's a patently stupid law. No politicians sign on and say 100% of the kids will be uh, proficient, above average, uh, it sounds like, uh, you know, Lake Wobegon, and uh, it's kind of bizarre. So uh, uh, then we have other things like uh, the law that's going around the country to uh, flunk kids if they're not reading uh, well. uh, And uh, things our legislature would say, and we would commiserate with each other and talk about it, And we kept saying we need to write a book, and uh, we didn't get to it. And then uh, we thought of what Al Franken had done, which is that when he needed to write a book and needed his facts to be accurate, he went to Harvard and hired us seven or nine students and uh, asked them to be his fact-checker and to co-write with him. So we decided to co-write with some of our students. We have some of the brightest students in the world at the. Uh, University of Colorado Boulder, and uh, Arizona State University. So those are our 19 associates. uh, And so we said, look, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Let's try to write about it in relatively short chapters. uh, um, Let's write for school board members and parents. And uh, let's keep the research graphs and uh, uh, regression equations to a minimum, uh, maybe leave them out altogether, but talk about what the evidence says, and see if we can start a thousand conversations.
0: Yeah, fantastic. I think that's one of the things that I do notice about the book is that while it presents sort of an academic-type argument and definitely the foundation, it's really written for someone who maybe doesn't really understand uh, advanced statistical equations or has never studied these kinds of things, but it's laying it out in a very nice way that is, that is understandable. It's good. Thank you. That was our goal. Fantastic. Fantastic. I, I think it worked for sure. And, and that's another thing. The chapters are quite small and broken up and very easy, and you can sort of go in and, and sort of look at the different uh, myths or lies that, that have been presented in maybe popular discourse and sort of break them down in, in a, very, uh, a, a very easy manner to understand. Uh, one of the things I do also like about this book is right from the beginning, you you don 't pull any punches with sort of uh, uh, talking about the people who might be helping to uh, spread these myths and lies and and, and for instance, you talk about uh, uh, Michelle Ree, uh, who was formerly uh, in, in washington d c in, in those schools and then of course i 'm here in New York City, so very uh, a guy who 's very notable here, uh, Mayor Bloomberg, for his education policies. so can you talk about maybe just quickly? Uh, those types of people who are spreading these uh, ideals and and why you feel like it's important to sort of counter them?
1: Well, people need to know that powerful people, uh, influential people um, in education um, have probably lied. Uh, Joel Klein was your chancellor in New York, and it looks like he fudged some data. Um, Bloomberg was his boss, and they uh, must have been part of it. Michelle Reed got a memo that people were fudging scores in her district, and she can't remember it. Well, uh, I don't know about you, but it sounds like lying to me. Um, uh, The uh, Goldwater Institute says early childhood education is a scam. Well, you're in New York City at the Horace Mann School. Uh, Some really stupid people then are paying $40,000 a year for preschool for their kids. Um, Why would they do that? So People are saying things that are not true. Bill Gates, huh? he may be a very nice man, certainly in medical work. He's doing wondrous things. But he really doesn't know education. And so he says uh, the costs are up and the scores are down. Well, um, he's wrong. Uh, the costs are up, but it's mostly for special ed and transportation and testing. Uh, the costs for my Microsoft programs are up too, but he doesn't <laughs> mention that. Um, and then when he says the scores are flat, actually is what he said. Um, that's not true. The NAEP scores have actually gone up, and particularly for black kids, they've gone up mm-hmm. rather dramatically. So, um, you know, if I had forty five billion dollars, uh, I think I would get a fact checker.
0: Oh, fantastic. I, I think uh, your your uh, sort of last point there, talking about some of the tests. Let's let's kind of dive into the first myth that you that you guys put out there in the book. Talking about these international testing scores that have gained so much popularity in the past couple of years, and really since uh, Reagan's era of, uh, of uh, um, a nation at risk. Uh, but right now, we're, we're talking about the, the, the PISA and the Thames. and if, Can you tell me, Can you tell the audience what these tests are and sort of how they're uh, presented to us?
1: Okay, there are are three major international tests we usually participate in. Uh, One is the PEARLS, which is the reading test. One is the TIMS, which is math and science. And the third, which is the most popular in the presses of of the world, is the PISA test, the uh, international program uh, for student assessment. Um, And uh, they get a lot of publicity when they come out because the report is always on the average score, the mean score. The average score contains kids who are in schools where very few kids are in poverty, and kids who are in schools with lots of kids in poverty. Put them together, the United States doesn't seem to be doing well. So the inference that is often made is that our schools are not doing well. But that's the mean score. Um, uh, um, There are no tall Americans. Why? Because the mean score is about 510. Well, we, we know there are tall Americans. We know there are short Americans. But... The mean score is going to hide the variation. That's exactly what happens on PISA. So when you break down PISA, when you break down TIMS, when you break down uh, PEARLS into five groups, uh, schools where under 10% of the kids are in poverty, schools where under 25% of the kids are in poverty, schools where under 50%, 75%, and then 75% or more in poverty, you have the five groups. It turns out that the two groups where poverty is very low 10% or less, 25%, to 10%. In those two groups, those kids score among the highest in the world in almost, well, in all three tests. And in the reading test, they score the highest in the world. On the TIMSS test, math and science, where we often don't do well uh, on average because we include the kids in high-poverty schools, but on, on TIMSS, um, the two groups of, of American students in public schools, about 15 million uh, students, uh, in the schools where under 10% are in poverty, or in schools where 10 to 25% are in poverty, uh, those kids scored higher than Finland. Mm. Now, Finland has always told us they're the best nation in the world. Well, their mean score is high. That's true. It's a much more homogeneous society. Uh, and, and they produce a the mean score that's quite enviable. Uh, We don't have that because we're not as homogeneous a society. We have kids going to schools where over 75% of the kids are in poverty. We have uh, black kids, poor kids, uh, Hispanic kids, American Indian kids going to school with others of their race and often their social class. And if poor kids go to school with poor kids and rich kids go to school with rich kids, they learn the norms uh, of their peer groups. And one group ends up going to college and doing well, and one group doesn't. Um, this, this is true of every test uh, that we have out there. Our two groups of kids in schools that are doing uh, that do not have a lot of poverty are among the highest scoring in the world. Now, notice there's a, there's a side issue here that's very important, uh, uh, Ryan, to think about. Um, we were just sold the common core of, of state standards. Because in part, we have an inadequate curriculum and are not doing well in the international test. That is patently false. Now, the Common Core State Standards may be better. That's a, that's a separate issue, okay? Uh, I, I, I don't want to get into that. But when you say that it shows that the American curriculum was inadequate, that's a lie. It's perfectly adequate in the schools that are serving kids where poverty is low. Let me give you an example uh, around this. Asian American kids outscored kids in Japan, and statistically, I think, tied with Korea. Now, um, Korea and Japan, we're always told how wonderful they are, but our Asians kick the butts of their Asians. Now, how do you do that in bad schools? You can't. It means the curriculum was working, and that the cultures of families, the cultures of neighborhoods are very powerful forces in the outcomes we get. You put a whole bunch of poor kids together with other poor kids, and we're going to get low mean achievement test scores. And that's what happens. Put them all together, the United States scores about average. Disaggregate, and we see that our public schools do really, really well when we have our public schools uh, uh, that are serving kids with under 50% of the families in poverty. Mm.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think when you talk about... Uh East Asia, especially Korea. I, I lived there for a couple of years. I, I taught
1: there oh, for a I mentioned Korea, and you also know what test tell is like for yeah. Korean kids and for other Asian kids. And, and the question uh, I always keep asking in America is, is um, do you understand that we invented childhood about 150 years ago? Okay? Uh, Before that, kids worked in their parents' shop, the shoemaker shop, girls helped their mothers in the kitchen, on the farm they were taking care of animals. We didn't have childhood. And then we invented childhood. And we liked childhood. Childhood is a wonderful period of life, of of, of nurturance and giving and growing. And now we have uh, kindergarten kids being tested so they're career and college ready. We're destroying destroying childhood. And the Asians have always done that. I mean, there's no... Messing around. You're going to study, you're going to go to school in Korea, then you're going to go to after school, then you're going to go home and do your homework. And uh, they don't date as much, they don't do as much uh, uh, stuff in after school, uh, as as far as I know, in in some of the Asian countries. It seems to me that the better question for the United States is not whether uh, uh, we want our children to work harder, the question is whether our 25 year olds and our 35 year olds are sufficiently creative and well-trained to take leadership roles in business and industry. And the answer to that seems a remarkable yes. Entrepreneurship and creativity works, and we have it for our 25-year-olds. That's where it counts.
0: Right, right. And as you mentioned, sort of the the, uh, quote-unquote testing hell that that happens over there, I definitely saw that on a daily basis and just felt so so much for the kids that were sitting in class from 8 a.m., until maybe 10 at night, things like that. Uh, there was actually a law that, that was was passed in South Korea where these special study rooms after school had to close at a certain time because they were being sort of forced to go study so late. And sometimes they would get caught having these kids here until uh, 3 in the morning or some things like that, uh, trying to make them not study as much. So And, and it's, it is interesting as well because when I was there, people would ask sort of like what, what we did in, in America and what were our schools like. And when uh, Obama went over there, when I was there as well, and he mentioned, uh, we're trying to get our schools like your schools. And they were like, what? We, we know something's wrong with, with our education. Why are you guys telling us everything is, is okay? You're trying to be like you guys. So I thought that was an interesting uh, corollary. Well. I
1: think uh, if, if you want to raise a Chinese or a Korean child in America... You can do so, the Tiger Mom book tells us how to do that, um, and those kids do well in school there 's no doubt about it, but we have a different vision of childhood, and the only question is whether we 're hampered by that vision when
0: people are twenty five years old mm-hmm. and the answer seems to be no right right well let 's get back to the the childhood then so you also wrote one of the chapters here talking about early childhood education and some people have said that this doesn't work, it doesn't matter, we don't need these kinds of programs, and you dispute this. Do you, sort of, you want to explain sort of the argument and then, uh, and then how you sort of debunk that?
1: Well, the, uh, many conservatives don't want to spend any money on early childhood education, so they're fighting Obama's plan for universalizing it. But in fact, Obama's on very good grounds for doing so. Uh, one typical study done in Europe using the PISA data uh, they look back on kids who had preschool and kids who did not have preschool in a whole bunch of countries and the kids who had preschool once you control for social class because of course it's usually wealthier kids um, who, who seem to be so stupid according to the Goldwater Institute the wealthier parents are sending their kids to preschool and wasting their money evidently uh, but it turns out that if you had preschool, you had an advantage, or I think it was 50 points on the PISA test. Um, and it was uh, rather dramatic for low-income kids. Uh, in Sweden and England, they did case studies, and in both countries, low-income kids who had preschool scored about 9, 10 points over their uh, uh, peers who didn't, and uh, high-income kids who had preschool scored about four or five points over kids who did not, who were also high-income. So it looks like preschool works for both low-income and high-income kids, but it works a lot better for low-income kids, better meaning that ultimately they score better uh, on, on tests like Visa. Um We have data in our own country that's very suggestive of cost-benefits for preschool. I should say, say something else, Brian. When I'm talking preschool, I'm not talking sitting with Auntie uh, name or something. you know I'm talking about a high quality preschool mm. with teachers trained in early childhood education. Mm. Okay. Um, uh, so it's not just daycare. I'm talking about, about uh, high quality preschools. Um, we have some evidence that if a community were to invest in a high quality preschool, the return to the community might be seven, eight, or nine dollars for every dollar invested but it won't be returned for 25 or 30 years. So it's a long-term investment, but it's a very good investment. You're not going to get that kind of rate return on many investments. But the number of kids who need special ed goes down if they've had preschool. Mm. The number of kids who uh, are incarcerated later in life is down. The number of kids who have decent-paying jobs so that they can pay taxes off of their earnings goes up if they've had preschool. So when you start factoring in all the long-term effects of what preschool has been found in at least three or four programs that were high-quality and studied very well, you find that it's one of the most cost-effective investments any community can make, mm-hmm. and yet we don't have it, and it's being fought when Obama's trying to uh, offer it. Um, it's also a, a side that, that maybe needs to be talked about a little about, about the uh, the uh, kind of a moral issue here. Um, lots of parents, particularly single parents, are working. Um, they need some place that is high quality for their kids while they're working. If we don't take them out of the labor force and keep them in the labor force, single parents, uh, single women particularly, their children might very well suffer, and we show, see that when they start school. But if they're in a high-quality daycare preschool, they're going to learn some seriation. They're going to learn their colors. They're going to do a little language work. Uh, it doesn't have to be a very academic preschool, but it always does some of that. They show up in kindergarten and first grade a lot better able to learn. They've had books read to them. Um, they've had uh, food given to them. Um, these are going to be healthier mentally and physically kids that enter our public schools. And for so many single women uh, on very reduced incomes working at the Walmarts who don't pay and the Targets that don't pay. Um, we need high quality daycare. So it's a moral issue as well as an educational issue, I think, uh, if we want to keep these women in the workforce.
0: So if we have the data and we sort of have the moral reasons, then what? what are, what's the, the argument that's coming from the other side saying that this, it, this doesn't work? Is there bad research or is it simply just the, the nature of not wanting to spend money from the government, or are they looking at private uh, interest into this? What's what sort of the arguments coming from there that way?
1: I think uh, there are probably many, but I think of, of, of two. Uh, one is the remarkable anti-tax uh, oh. notions that run through this country. Uh, we just had a, a meeting of the six or so candidates for uh, governor in Arizona, on uh, the Republican side, and three of them swore to reduce our taxes and get rid of the uh, uh, personal taxes. Well, how do you run a society without taxes? I'm sorry. Uh, those are stupid ideas. They're not, I, 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 and you can't do that. So part of it is this anti tax notion that runs through the whole country. I don't want to pay for, for anything else. Uh, in fact, I want to divest myself of everything. And you see that in the um, charter school movement and the uh, voucher movement in which we are asking people to divest themselves of the taxable schools. Our chief state school officer in Arizona made 15,000 robo-calls telling people to leave their public schools and mm. go get vouchers. So what we're seeing is uh, all over the country, uh, the anti-tax forces trying to divest themselves of one of the largest budget items in every uh, state, county, and local budget system, which is their public schools. I think this is irresponsible uh, for lots of reasons, among which uh, uh, are we, we will never be able to keep our democracy if we lose our public school. Mm. But there's a second reason that's um, e- 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 even worse. <laughs> it's just plain mean, and that is I want secure positions for my kids and the hell with yours. Mm. Um, what you're seeing is the, uh, the, the job market is changing radically. The number of really good paying jobs is being restricted. They're just not there like they once were. Uh, so who is going to get those jobs? The best educated people, the, the Stanford's, the Harvard's, the ASU's, which is a fine public university. Uh, the people coming out of there with the best educations so are going to get those jobs. And the more I can keep uh, black kids, brown kids, poor kids, Indian kids, other kids... From competing for those very good jobs, the more likely my child, my boy or my girl, is going to get one of those good jobs. So I don't want to support them. Now, that, I think, is mean, but there are people who have expressed that. Uh, they want the opportunities for their kids, and they'll pay for that, because then they know that their kids will be taken care of That's just plain, uh, uh, it's self-interest, that it's right.
0: Uh, meanest. Right. Well, Oakum's razor, getting into the okay. self-interest type, uh, type way of thinking. And you mentioned. I know you didn't didn't write specifically about it in, in this in this book, but you you mentioned uh, charters and vouchers. So I'm wondering if we could just briefly discuss those uh, for for a second. Can you maybe just because I know some of our audience might not be as familiar, especially when we're talking about the U.S. domestic uh, policies. If you could just mention sort of what a charter school is and how is it different than than our normal public school, and maybe how is it different than a private school, if you can. And then sort of what what a voucher system is as well, if you don't mind.
1: Well, the charter schools were an idea that uh, seemed innocuous enough at the time. Uh, If some teachers or some uh, entrepreneurs thought they could run a better school, uh, let's give them a charter to do so. There'll be good competition for the school, competition is good in the marketplace. um, All that seemed reasonable. So, uh, charters uh, uh, were long history to it, but... uh, uh, they became, became popular uh, some years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Arizona, my state, is one of the leaders in chartering. and was one of the early chartering states. Basically, um, a district uh, could allow a teacher group to open our school. And it would be part of the district funded with public money. But it also allowed entrepreneurs to open uh, a public school and get public money. Mm-hmm. So if you're giving $8,000 uh, a child to the public school, and I open a charter school, that is I appeal to the state for a charter, um, and I get it. Um, I open a school, I get a facility, I open a school, I get a 100 kids. I get $8,000 for the each of the kids, so I'm making a lot of money coming in. And then I need to actually run the school. So how do I run it? I run it with teachers who I pay less. Uh, I run it with uh, computers doing some of the teaching. Uh, I run it with uh, uh, on, on the. Uh, I make the parents do the education, do the uh, uh, transportation, uh, etc., and then I can make a lot of money. So uh, uh, with a uh, hundred kids and eight thousand dollars a kid, you can do the math. There's a lot of money in there. If I only pull out a hundred thousand from my salary, uh, that would be wonderful. Uh, um, and then if I buy services uh, from my brother-in-law or sister-in-law. Um, to clean the school, to provide the lunches, uh, then the family gets to keep another 100000 mm. and And uh, this has been happening all over the country, scam after scam, uh, because uh, the market people who wanted the charters, because they wanted the competition, don't want any regulation of the charters. Mm. So what they want is public money used for unregulated uh, schools. And it's very hard to get regulations for these schools, except fire codes and things like that. But other than that, there's, they, they say, well, let a thousand flowers bloom. Uh, let's see how the charters do. But well, we have very good evidence that the charters are not any better than public schools. Many are worse. Few are better. Uh, but most of the better quote, quotes on better charters are due to um, pretty um, sneaky stuff. Mm. Like anyone's allowed in the charter, but I'll counsel you out if you're special ed. I'll counsel you out if you're an English language learner. I'll fail you out and tell you to go back to a public school if your parent doesn't sign a contract saying they'll help you with homework, etc. So the charters have been um, uh, a disappointment. Uh, they have not produced the kind of um, uh, hot new ideas in education that right. they were supposed to. Uh, in fact, when you think about it, you know schools have been around roughly uh, uh, three, four thousand years. Um, it's, it's hard to invent a better way to educate. And we have already, you know. Um, I mean, we could start putting iPads in, but that's just the iPad substituting for an instructor in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so the charter idea is, uh, is not paid off. And there's lots of skimming and creaming of students, and that's um, uh, uh, very harmful and very uh, misleading for the public. So one charter here says, 98% of our graduates went on to college. Well, what they don't tell you is that they had 120 kids in fifth grade and 20 Mm -hmm. when the kids graduated. Right. Well, any public school that picks out its 20 best graduates will will have a record equal to that charter. Mm -hmm. But we don't. We try to educate them all. Right. So the charters have been a big disappointment. Um, Now, the um, uh, voucher plan is a very sneaky system of getting um, uh, money to schools uh, that are public money. Uh, The... Voucher legislation, it varies by states, but the voucher legislation is likely to be something like, um, if you send your kid to a private school, then obviously we're not paying that money for the public school, so we'll give it to you. So um, even if your private school costs $20,000 a year, uh, as many do, uh, we'll give you the $7,000 or some piece of it, maybe $5,000, to send your kid to a private school. Well, who's going to do that? All the rich people who can afford the $15,000 bridge between what the state will give them and what the, um, uh, the cost of the private school.
0: Okay, okay. fantastic. If you can uh, maybe get into, because I, I know we have to sort of jump back into some of the things that, that, that you, were, you, uh, you writ, wrote for the book, and I really am um, excited about the, the charter stuff, so if, if you're interested in that, Uh, for for the audience, go in and read the book, and uh, you can get more of that. Um, So David, if you want to get back to, I know one of the sections that you're sort of passionate about yourself is this idea that I think connects a little bit to the charter school, sort of moving the kids along, Where, which I thought was very telling in the book, where they would sort of just tell these kids to leave or go somewhere else. There wasn't really the buy-in in in, in the entire kids. They're only sort of investing in in maybe the top-level kids, and that's why they're getting these standout rates. But if you could kind of talk about uh, in, in the public school, talking about leaving kids behind and sort of the rationale that, that is talked about and that this is good for the students, uh, I guess is the myth that is, is posed in the book. And if you can talk about why sort of that is wrong and what's the benefit of, of moving kids along or making sure that yeah, they're, they're actually where they're at. One thing
1: about the charters and the voucher plans. Uh, these are both ways to use public money in unregulated ways. We are giving license to people who may or may not be honest brokers. And we have lots of evidence that many of them are not. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what's important here. On the the issue of uh, this uh, program, that's uh, I think in about a dozen states right now, Florida, Arizona among them. uh, This is uh, in Florida, it's called Florida Reads or something like that. In Arizona, it's called Move On When Reading. And in third grade, we essentially say, well, if the kid's not reading by third grade, they're going to have trouble, which is true. So let's leave them back, which is probably an absolutely stupid choice to make. We have so many research studies that tell us that for the kids that we're going to leave back, uh, very few of them will be advantaged by being left back, and the vast majority of them will be hurt by being left back. How, how are they hurt? They dislike school They drop out sooner. Um, Their parents change their opinions of their own kids. Um, It's just, uh, it's heartbreaking. When you do interviews with kids who have been left back, you find out that they say it's the equivalent of going blind or losing a parent. Mm. Um, thats um, It's so, so harsh. The important thing, though, is that the evidence is quite overwhelming that leaving a kid back is harmful to the kid. If you had identical twins who were not doing well in third grade and you left one back and moved one ahead, the one who was moved ahead with their age mates would like school better and be scoring higher on standardized tests.
0: That,
1: that's the evidence. Um, and so why would anyone then uh, not pay attention to the evidence uh, and be willing to spend uh, uh, $7,000, $8,000, $10,000 more For a child to be kept in school another year? And the answer is meanness, cruelty. Um, uh, There is no justification for leaving a third grade kid back in the research literature. Now, I suggested to some Arizona legislators that if you're going to spend an extra, let's say, $8,000 because you've committed to leaving a kid back for the year, why don't you spend $4,000 a year for two years to get a tutor for the kid? Uh, tutoring is a very powerful form of instruction and can help the child uh, read. Uh, I have in my family um, a third grader who the teacher said was not reading at grade level, so the family invested in tutoring. At the end of the year, the kid was reading at third grade level and was advanced. It, it's not very difficult to do. Uh, it's not any cost differential to do. And we have legislators who want to give, quote, the gift of time the children. Well, it's not a gift children really need. It's not a gift families really want. We'd be much better off investing in uh, tutoring for these kids and helping
0: them be ready for fourth grade or fifth grade or what they need. Right, right. And, and how does that affect uh, especially maybe an ESL learner uh, in, in, with they're trying to catch up in, into learning English uh, as a second language and, and maybe even a third language potentially?
1: Yeah. Again, if, if we regard our English language learners as somehow deficient because they're not reading English at uh, the rates we want, uh, we we just need a change in our understanding. These kids are not deficient. They are in fact have assets. They have another language mm-hmm. and, and they're mastering English as rapidly as they can. I know of no kid who doesn't want to master English as rapidly as they can. And uh, what we need to do is have some maybe after school programs, some summer programs, do some parent training. Uh, bilingual education uh, works when it's again the issue is high quality, like early childhood. Um, just shoving a kid in an in immersion situation and say that's bilingual education is not very helpful. Uh, but true bilingual education and, and even better uh, dual language schools work very well. America should have dual-language schools uh, instead of canceling out the Spanish that kids bring or the Chinese or Korean that a kid brings. we had dual-language schools, then English speakers would learn Korean or Spanish, and the Korean or Spanish kids would learn English. Mm-hmm. The dual-language schools are, are asset-based. Most bilingual programs have some sort of belief that there's a, a deficit somewhere. Uh, that's nonsense. The people who speak two languages are yeah, actually... <laughs> have cognitive powers beyond uh, monolinguals. Uh, they see. seem more creative with language and they actually deteriorate less slowly uh, or, or less they deteriorate less rapidly when they're older because mm-hmm. they have two stores of language. So, um, if, if you want to know what's good for a nation and good for a child, it would be trying to raise bi and trilingual kids and mm-hmm. instead what we do is try to spoke the language that a, a, an immigrant kid brings. It's mm-hmm. really stupid.
0: Right. And sometimes you get these calls that, you know, English isn't, or if they're not learning English, it's somehow un-American or learning another language is somehow un-American. And, and you do actually hear people and and even politicians saying these kinds of things, which... Uh, it sounds like you would agree is is a little bit ridiculous, or a lot ridiculous.
1: Ridiculous is a kind word. It's stupid. I mean, the evidence is that this is a stupid belief system. It's actually to your advantage to know two languages or more. Uh, so uh, so if you want intelligent Americans, try to preserve languages as we teach English, not try to squelch them. So uh, the paranoia is always there when people speak another language. You're almost sure they're talking about you, so there's kind of an eric- paranoia, and we got to get over it because uh, chances are they're not talking about you. Mm-hmm. And, so, uh, and the politicians who say it's un-American, I mean, uh, are the uh, Dutch, un-Dutch? Un- Every Dutch person speaks English, okay? In fact, uh, they'd rather speak English, Dutch is a hard language to speak uh, in the rest of the world. Mm. Uh, the Danes speak English, the Norwegians speak English. Uh, are they unpatriotic? Do they not love their countries? So, so this, this is a statement that's based on some sort of um, paranoia, and it has to be gotten past.
0: Right, right. And it, so I, I hear all these arguments and these myths that are coming out, and I guess I have to ask, it does seem that you know, on all the myths, there is somewhat of a, a, a right slant or more conservative slant. Was this... Was the idea in this book to sort of be calling out that uh, political wave, or did that just manifest by itself as, as it was sort of going along and you kept finding these myths?
1: That's a very good question, Ryan. I, I, I haven't confronted it before I thought about it. Mm. Um, I, I, think, um, I think it was less political. I think it turned out that way. A lot of these beliefs that we uh, fight against are promoted. The anti-tax legislation, the anti uh, uh, hood stuff, the uh, leaving back, I think a lot of that is conservative, and so we look like we're anti-conservative, uh, And uh, uh, but I would say most of our authors are progressive, most educators are. Um, I know we had a few who were I would call certainly middle of the road, maybe even uh, a little right of center, but... Um, uh, I would call all our educators pretty progressive. And, mm-hmm. and again, it's hard to be an educator and not be progressive. Uh, uh, right. Because, I mean, you're believing in the future. You're believing in uh, in change, okay? Mm-hmm. And you're believing that government, schools, can be effective in making that change. A lot right. of conservatives think that when the government is involved, um, it's necessarily evil. Mm-hmm. Well, I, 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 there are very few educators hold that view. So my guess is we were... Uh, more progressive than we were liberal Mm
0: -hmm. or leftist right and i I wasn't uh suggesting that that they're that's actually in the book but as we start kind of talking about it and laying it out in this conversation uh it just kind of dawned on me that this is sort of uh it ends up being maybe a, a, a theme throughout the book that that maybe wasn't really meant to be there but just sort of comes out
1: But but again, so you know, we tried. The uh, chapter on uh, Teach for America, Mm -hmm. uh, we asked uh, a local leader of Teach for America to write that chapter. Uh, He was a doctoral student in our program, and we said, look, you know it best. Uh, Give us a fair chapter, pros and cons. Mm -hmm. And he did, and I think it was a very fair chapter. Uh, We all edited and worked on it so that it was as non-biased as could be, written from a real friend of Teach for America. Right,
0: chapter came out, and they fired him. Oh, wow. That's so, uh, just so you know. Uh, <laughs> I see. Okay. Well, I guess to do, him, to do him justice, can you talk about what that chapter says a little bit? Or what does it say? What did he find for Teach for America?
1: Well, I mean, he, he makes a, a wonderful point I had not really thought much about before the chapter, which is that um, he thinks that a lot of Teach for America teachers... Um, are replacing or, 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 replacing teachers who themselves would show a lot of turnover and who are not the best in the field or they wouldn't have that kind of placement in the lowest income schools. And I don't know if he's right or not, but he said, you know, that, that's part of the reason he thinks that many teacher American teachers trained at very fine institutions like my own Arizona State University mm-hmm. or Harvard or Stanford, uh, he thinks that, uh, having them in for two years, um, may not be all that bad. But what he admits and, and documents quite clearly is what their first two years are like. They're hell. Mm. They're untrained teachers who cannot get the uh, assignments across. Now, they learn fast. They're smart. They're committed. Some of my finest doctoral students at ASU have been ex-Teach for America teachers who mm. say, oh, my gosh, this is a fascinating profession. I'd like to get into it and, uh, and, and work in it. But the majority of them in their first year are failures the vast majority, and many of them, as you know, get out in two years, most in three years, and um, so you're not getting the build-up of skills that we know it takes to be a really good teacher. It takes three to five years to gain the kind of expertise you hope teachers will have um, in in, in school. So I think he wrote a very balanced um, chapter on Teach for America, showing its warts, talking about where it makes contributions and why it's important, and uh, and they fired him.
0: Wow, that that's uh. Tell, give him, give him my regards. I'm, I'm glad it. I'm glad it's <laughs> well, it it uh it, it, it I think it it adds to this book considerably, especially because Teach for America I think has become, uh, somewhat of a cultural, uh, at least out of the mainstream and into into the main, uh, out of education at least for sure. Um, it, it just jumping back on a couple of these... By, by the way,
1: oh uh, yeah. Just so you know, we, we, having Teach for America teachers is wonderful thing for keeping the budget low, because mm-hmm. we know they're going to churn and they're going to not stay in the field. So you can keep hiring new teachers and not pay for experienced right. teachers. So in in, in a way, um, uh, salaries are reduced by having a temporary core of teachers, Right. and that's not healthy for a field
0: either. Young and cheap like Younger, basically. Cheap. Um, well, I guess, can, can you just talk a little bit, because we're already sort of getting into it, some of the myths that are perpetuated about teachers and uh, sort of their life and, and their pay in the United States, and, and you know, are they important or are they not important? Uh, can, can you talk about just maybe a couple of those? Uh, I, I know they, they weren't your chapters, but but you're certainly... Um well, the,
1: the salary issue is very important. The, the U.S. Uh, salary structure was hurt in the recent recession and continues uh, teachers are not making back some of that money, but the uh, uh, things of starting salaries for teachers vis-a-vis others of their education level, graduates of good schools uh, in the humanities let's say, uh, the uh, uh, salaries are a little low um, more important the salaries at the top are very low mm. so you don't get to um, make the kind of money over time that you would hope a professional person, uh, with lots of responsibility in our society, uh, uh would make, uh, in, in a, in a, uh, nation state like, uh, Singapore, um, if you stay, I think it's 10 years, you automatically get a uh, bonus that might be $10,000. I mean, you're a valuable person right. because you have acquired experience. So we're going to give you a bonus to make sure you don't leave. If you stay another few years, we'll give you another big fat bonus. Mm-hmm. Um, we want you to stay because we value what you know. In our country, we try to get rid of these people because they cost too much. Right. So, And, and, and what they cost is really not a lot. Right. So uh, we have a, a problem in salaries. Uh, also lately, they've cut benefits. Uh, they've cut the retirement plans. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the simple um, notion we uh, talked about before, that there are people in this country who don't want to pay taxes. They want to destroy the public schools and put that burden on uh, private uh, funding. Right. Um, this is a disruption of democracy. I mean, Jefferson wrote about this. You, you can't have a free people without a good education system. That's, that's pretty well known. Um, so uh, I, 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 on the salary issue, I think we have lots, lots of fun. On the tenure issue, today the uh, judge in California ruled that tenure has to be abolished in California. Uh, the way we know it. Um, Tenure um, is simply about due process. That's all it is. It's a guarantee to teachers that if the principal's brother-in-law wants a job, they won't throw you out and give it to the brother-in-law. It's about due process. It's about saying that if you are doing your job right in your classroom, the principal can't tell you you have to uh, promote this candidate, or you have to promote this policy that you can say no and not get fired because due process would how you keep your job. Right. Um, to do away with tenure, uh, w- which uh, um, has been a tradition of due process, is to um, make the teaching profession um, much closer to um, an at-will teaching. And at-will is, um, is very difficult. You're, you're, you're not tenured, um, Um, you haven't got the stability, and you also don't have the commitment.
0: Well, it might be easier for someone just to say, you know what, I don't want to do this, I'm going to leave, just all of a sudden.
1: And you might leave in the middle of a semester, Mm -hmm. et cetera, because um, you can't trust that the institution will provide for you. Right. I think it's a terrible decision that was just made, uh, and uh, it's based on um, some some very bad logic by the judge, I think, and I hope it's uh, contested. Um, the the plaintiffs in the case claim that poor kids are getting grossly ineffective teachers. And I've been in lots of schools, and to see grossly ineffective teachers is very hard to find. You Mm -hmm. see some teachers you might not like for your own kid, but that's a separate issue from grossly ineffective. And 10 years, we have very few grossly ineffective teachers for a couple of very important reasons. I mean, one of them is, in a teacher education program like our own at ASU, we've been known to get rid of at least 10% of the teachers in training. Mm-hmm. Then if they go into the field in the first five years, 50% of them leave because right. they find out it's not for them or it doesn't pay well enough or they can't guarantee the future. Right. So what we're talking about is a field that actually polices itself very well and self-selects out. Mm-hmm. At the end of those five years, we have a teacher core that's pretty darn good so grossly ineffective teachers, I mean, they may vary. Well, they do vary in, in their competence and their abilities. But the term used in California was grossly ineffective. And you rarely see a grossly ineffective teacher. Right,
0: right. Uh, well, that was, that was great on, on the teacher issue. And again, there's, there's a lot more in the book on teachers that we can't get to today. And if you're interested in that in the audience, then I, I encourage you to go check that out. David, we're coming to the end of the interview. Do you have any last words that you want to say that, that maybe you didn't get out on, on the book before we, before we reach sort of the conclusion?
1: Well, uh, what we wanted to do, and, 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 and most important to us, is to start conversations. We wrote this, as, as you noted, for school board members, parents, uh, uh, others in the general population who all have opinions about education, mm-hmm. uh, but we think some of them are wrong. Uh, but we want them to start conversations. Uh, so here's fifty conversations to start. Should we have school uniform? That's a conversation. Mm-hmm. The data on that is quite equivocal. Should we have a longer school day? Well, what would it do for us? Mm-hmm. That's a conversation. We address those in, in the book. Um, we may not be right on all fifty of the positions we took, but we sure think we yeah. have. Uh, um, we can start a conversation and, and can represent the position, and that's really our goal. Um, there's a lot of stuff that is believed that isn't true or can't be backed up. And sometimes it, it's just out of meanness, like leaving kids back. And everything we know says that's the wrong uh, solution for the community. Um, so we hope the conversation starts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think this this does it very nicely with some evidence if someone's interested in these, these issues, certainly. Uh, kind of our last uh, little question that we like to ask here, uh, David. Uh, what's next for you? What, what's on the research plate? What are you looking into? What, what interests you?
1: Well, I'm very interested in what I call the uh, teacher effectiveness paradox. Um, the paradox is everybody's trying to judge teacher effectiveness through test scores, uh, these value-added models, when teachers don't have much influence on those. Uh turns out that that's more influenced by the peer group one goes to school with, uh, the cohort you're with, uh, the neighborhood you're in. What teachers do is influence individual children dramatically. Now, there are exceptions to what I say, but, but in general, teachers uh, touch eternity through the students they work with, and their effects on the test scores are much more modest. But we're holding them accountable for the test scores, and we have no way of evaluating their impact on individual kids except through anecdotes and stories, right. which we accept in lots of other fields, but we will not accept as data in mm-hmm. education. Right. So I'm trying to sort that out.
0: I see. Well, good, good luck there, and we look, we look forward to that. I'm sure it will be an interesting uh, article or maybe book even, uh, and we'll look for that in the future. Uh, but, uh, David, I, I do appreciate it. And uh, just for everybody uh, on the New Books Network, there's 50 Myths and Lies That Threaten America's Public School, The Real Crisis in Education, David Berliner, Gene Glass, and Associates. Uh, Go check that guy. Go check it out. And I hope you guys learned something.
1: Thank you very much, Ryan.